So tonight I want to speak about the Parami of Sila again, but from a different point of view. Last time I talked about it as um, the practice of the five mindfulness trainings that we looked at from their inner or more mystical meaning as well as their outer meaning in terms of our actions. And tonight I wanted to talk about sila as the foundation for karma. And I said I would talk a little bit about karma. And, and then I kind of forgot I was going to do that. And then somebody reminded me. And I thought, why did I ever say I would do that? Because it's a very vast uh, subject. And so uh, try to weave these together and uh, you'll get, well, you'll get something, um, <laughs> if only the practice of sitting and listening. So, uh, so sila, when I contemplate the parami of sila, which again means goodness of the heart, virtue, um, can re- translate it some different ways. The root of the word I looked up, and Gil, you can, Gil wasn't here, so I had to look it up. Um, <laughs> uh, means to serve or to practice. Sila? That's what it said. Good, great. I thought so too. <laughs> I like that. Did you hear something different? Tell me what you heard. The, um, <coughs> uh, the most common source, but it's also made up. Theravadan Buddha makes up a lot of etymology. It's a bed or foundation. So uh, Gil was explaining that the source that he heard um, was that it means bed or foundation. Uh, But he also explained, which you may have overheard, that uh, in Theravada Buddhism they make up a lot of the etymologies. (laughs) So you take your pick, whichever one serves you. Uh, Use that one. Uh, but this is a, an exchange between the Buddha and um, Ananda about the rewards of virtue. And it's always good to start with you know, what we're going to get out of doing it because virtue itself or goodness, um, it sounds like it might not necessarily be so much fun, but I will talk about that. So Ananda said to the Buddha, What, O Venerable One, is the reward and blessing? of sila. And the Buddha said, freedom from remorse, Ananda. And so Ananda went on, okay, that sounds okay, but what is the blessing really of freedom from remorse? I think we feel he felt there had to be more to it than that. And then the Buddha said, joy, joy, Ananda. And then Ananda goes on, he just wants to hear more, of joy. What about, you know, what's the reward and blessing of joy? Rapture, Ananda. And of rapture, and in here, rapture, we have to understand as something pleasurable, um, relating to the word rapt, like rapt attention, that sense of just being so absorbed. Tranquility, Ananda. And of tranquility, happiness, Ananda. And of happiness, concentration, Ananda. And of concentration, vision and knowledge according to reality. And of the vision and knowledge according to reality, turning away and detachment, Ananda. And of turning away and detachment, the vision and knowledge with regard to deliverance, to liberation. So what I love about this sequence is that really sila can take us all the way, and the Buddha said so. And the way to practice sila is basically to practice the five mindfulness trainings um, that we did talk about last time. And, you know, they can... um, They can be sliced finer and finer and broken down, but it's enough for us to know that that's the way to practice this parami. And the joy or the happiness part, I really experienced today when I was gathering teachings and really 
reflecting on this talk, it was very joyful experience. I thought, you know, this is this one, Sila is it's like um it felt like an act of love. And I thought that is really the heart of it for me, this sense of uh, living so harmoniously and so well that we just fall in love with ourselves, with life. Um, and it's also a foundation of the heart and for our practice because we can use the principles of sila to order and structure our life at times when it might not feel so ordered or structured, like when we're venturing into the unknown in our practice in different ways. When we're soaring, you know, it will make sure we um, straighten up and fly right. And sila is manifested in karma. It's the foundation for the actions of body and speech that are called a karma. And I guess the last thing I would say in defining it is that I think sila is cool. Here's how. The Buddha said, really looking at the reality of our situation, that everything is burning. Everything is burning in the fire of greed, hatred, and ignorance. And so, whether it's the first step of the Twelve Steps or the First Noble Truths, whatever framework we use, we can look with clarity at the human world and really see the suffering that is caused by craving and addiction to what I call self-supremacy our unquestioning belief in the conditioned self. So sila is an invitation to cool off, to quench the fires of longing to be anywhere but here, anyone but me, in any life but my own. And here's a story of It's a story from outside of retreat, but we can really see it as a metaphor for things that are happening in our own inner life. A small unit of American soldiers was walking along a street in Najaf when hundreds of Iraqis poured out of the buildings on either side. Fists waving, throats taut, they pressed in on the Americans who glanced at one another in terror. The Iraqis were shrieking, frantic with rage. This is it, I thought, the reporter who's writing. A shot will come from somewhere, the Americans will open fire, and the world will witness the My Lai massacre of the Iraq war. At that moment, an American soldier stepped through the crowd, holding his rifle high above his head, with the barrel pointed toward the ground. Against the backdrop of the seething crowd, it was a striking gesture, almost biblical. Take a knee, the officer said, impassive behind his surfer dude sunglasses. The soldiers looked at him as if he was crazy. Then one after another, Swaying in their bulky armor and gear, they knelt before the boiling crowd and pointed their guns at the ground. The Iraqis fell silent, and their anger subsided. The officer ordered his men to withdraw. This was a story uh, from the New Yorker in January '05. The officer in charge was Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes. The New Yorker reporter tracked him down months later at his home in Iowa and asked him, who taught you how to tame a crowd like that? He said it just seemed like an obvious solution to make a gesture of respect. Shortly after that fraught experience in Najaf, 
the new army chief of staff at the time, General Shinseki, concluded that its officers were not prepared to innovate in this incoherent, asymmetrical war, and that most of the training manuals in use were non-essential and meaningless. So how did he do that, Chris Hughes? He had some kind of internal default setting that inclined his heart toward respect, so that even in that terrifying situation, that's what came up for him. And without thinking, he couldn't explain how he did it. No one taught him how. But because he had that default setting of respect in his heart, it came to him. And he served the situation with his gesture of respect. I think Sila is our training manual. Maybe someday it can be a training manual for the armed forces. But certainly for us, it's our training manual. And at this point in the retreat, you know, you calm down a lot. At the same time, often as practice deepens and even as concentration and settledness grows, it's amazing what can suddenly feel safe to emerge because we're more at peace, because there's more stillness and calm. Sometimes boiling crowds of kaleshas of our inner demons can appear and frighten us, even now. As the Buddha said to his Sangha before he passed away, what I have taught and explained to you as Dharma and Sila will be your teacher when I'm gone. And so Sila is really our uh, Dharma protector. There's a beautiful phrase, I think it's in here, um, yeah, where it says, the Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed as the protection of the Dharma. The Sangha is my supreme support. Well, I feel like Sila is like this too. My spiritual teacher and guides of great virtue. The guide of great virtue is Sila. That's it. It's like our mother and father and mentor and Dharma protector. And here's how it works. Here's one way that it works. Um, it's based on mindful awareness through our capacity for empathic connection to ourselves. And of course, uh, that helps us be aware of and understand others. This is a quote from Nisargadatta. By shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the interior witness of the thing and this capacity to shift the focal point of consciousness I call love. So he's talking about, in the Tibetan tradition, they call it exchanging self for other. He's talking about beginning to inhabit the subjectivity of another. And he's saying he just does it by shifting the focus of attention so that there's not really, he's not separating from experience. He's including the object of mind in his own subjective experience. He calls it love. I also call it Sangha. Uh, sangha is our um, companions in Sila. From Goethe, the world is so empty if one thinks only of mountains and rivers and cities. But to know someone here and there who thinks and feels with us 
and who, though distant, is close to us in spirit. This makes the earth for us an inhabited garden. So karma. You know, karma is actually, it just means action. It's sometimes called karma vitaka, action and result. But I think it's linked to understanding equanimity because it's, it's not about deserving suffering or punishment. I printed out the lyrics, you know. You know, we are used to thinking, John Lennon, right? Instant karma's going to get you, going to knock you right on the head. You better get yourself together. Pretty soon you're going to be dead. I mean, that's sometimes our view of what karma is. And it's almost like, um, I don't know, Santa Claus. He knows if you've been good. (laughs) He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. That kind of understanding. And um, really, it's very, that's kind of primitive. It's kind of childlike, not in the good sense. I don't want to insult children. Uh, Immature. It's kind of immature. I don't want to. I, I revere them. Um, it's about taking responsibility. As I mentioned in the talk about truth, uh, I, I said, you know, people who recognize their own mistakes and change their ways illumine the world like the moon when freed from a cloud. So we can change our karma. It all depends on intention, motivation, which um, Adrian is going to talk about Thursday night. So you're probably going to have to wait until Friday to really change your karma. But in the meantime, you know, I'll give you a little bit to go on, just so you don't make like more scary, bad karma um, that John Lennon up there, or Santa Claus, anyway. Um, There's a beautiful quote, I'm going to have to paraphrase because I didn't find it, I just thought of it, uh, by Padmasambhava, who is like the uh, Tibetan Buddha, uh, Guru Rinpoche. And he says, everything rests, everything depends, everything rests on the tip of motivation. And then he says, my view is as vast as the sky. But my attention to karma, to action, is as fine as barley flour. It's like that subtle. So that's something we can really be inspired by, holding the both sides, the vast view of the impersonal workings of cause and effect, which are really like a law of gravity. You know, they're just something that are, it's very can be in some ways very obvious to us, in some ways very mysterious, like uh, Steve was pointing to the other morning. And I'll talk about that too. But, um, but we can get really sensitive to whether we're acting in healthy or unhealthy ways, following the inner precepts or not, um, especially in retreat. I remember I was doing a metta retreat, intensive metta, for six weeks, and just day and night, metta, 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 um, in all the directions and categories of beings and on and on. And I got so sensitive that the minute I would judge myself, like the minute I would have some thought getting down on myself, my whole body would just contract as if I had like smacked myself. And I thought, wow, I mean, that's pretty interesting to observe. As we get sensitive, we get more and more of that uh, visceral gut feeling for what we're involved in and whether it's loving or unloving, wise or unwise. And we know our actions come back to us in the way that we treat people and how they treat us back. So... From the Dhammapada, the thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. It's harder to change when it's our character. 
So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. Another way of saying it, to that which the mind or heart attends to, to that does the heart incline. It becomes that habit of mind, that default setting. And may it be based on respect. Now, there are ways that we just can't actually see the results of our actions, that it is kind of mysterious. Um, And the Buddha said we really can't see and understand exactly how karma works. Um, And as uh, you were bringing up the other morning, Steve, you said, you know, sometimes it seems like healthy, wise actions bring happiness into our life, but that the actions that have brought suffering into our life have brought the greatest learning, too, and maybe even ultimately joy in that. But I still don't think that contradicts the fact that there is some, there seems to be some built-in moral dimension to the universe. And for me, that's what inspires me about the teachings on Sila that um, gives me trust in the Dharma, that we really do live in a world where nonviolence and non-harming matter, uh, where causes and conditions do follow some impersonal, lawful pattern. But the Buddha said, don't think about this too much. I mean, he said, this was actually one of the four imponderables, which if you think about them too much, he says, you will go mad and experience vexation. Um, and I know at times of great suffering, often I could go into this place of maybe taking too much responsibility, like wanting to find out, why did this happen? The mind reaches out, you know, when you're in a time of a lot of obstacles or losses, or, and it's just like, why is this happening to me? Some story about my karma. And, you know, that's the self that wants to know. It's not the, it's, it's the self that's actually a strategy for trying to control pleasure and pain. And, and blame, too, is an activity. It's an activity of the self, uh, extremely, extremely unhelpful. And it's actually, in a way, the self maybe doesn't want to admit how many aspects or elements of the world we don't control that do affect uh, the causes and conditions of our life, climate change, environment, uh, mental and physical illnesses or imbalances that we have, um, accidents, and so on. just trying to see how much of this I can actually share with you and what's most important to me to share with you. Um, So I think that... um, What's most important for me to share with you? It's always so hard to um, edit yourself. You know, you just, um, it's so hard to throw away things that seem so good and creative. And it's such a great practice uh, to let go of that. So, (laughs) I mean, completely doesn't matter, right? You will never know what I didn't tell you. (laughs) Anyway, There is um, this question of karma and no self. And I was going to tell you a whole Zen koan, but it's a long story. And I think instead, I just want to stay with the, um, what the neurologists tell us really confirms what the Buddha said. And they tell us that the functioning, you know, there really isn't a self that they can locate anywhere in the brain. And 
But really what it's more like is this kind of um, li alive hairnet all over our head. Um, that it's not a linear stream of thoughts and images and sensations, but this sort of unending, uh, changing pattern that functions harmoniously. So it's an integrated living hairnet of connections and associations <laughs> flashing in and out of consciousness, um, flashing in and out of existence, actually, and it's happening like trillions of times a second, and it's all coordinated by who? Who? This beginningless and endless phenomena. You know, who? Who? So, this is why, this is why, because we really, truly, deeply don't know, um, this is why intention is so important. And again, Adrian will talk about how to strengthen wise intentions to grow in love and understanding and discard the ones that really aren't about, like, aren't about that. Um, somebody asked this morning about this pressure cooker, and I said, you know, um, it's true, if we think about our practice at the beginning, it is, it's like this little, I don't know, this teeny little, maybe tiny little um, butter warming pot or something next, you know, in the face of this fire hose of a pressure cooker of habit force. But if we think of it as a crucible that transforms our habit force stream into a Dharma stream, that's what the paramis are. That's what sila is. It's a crucible. And, the, um, and they allow us to actually to transform, to shift, to redirect our karmic stream. Um, and in this is huge. This is really huge. But it's, we, otherwise the teachings of karma really would be as scary as Santa or John Lennon um, have led us to believe. If we couldn't, if we didn't have this potential to transform um, in the unbounded crucible of our practice, it would be very depressing. But we know that neuroplasticity is always on. This living hairnet, you know, it's always functioning and forming new pathways and associations. And so we can uh, use our sila to affect how it's forming and purifying and creating these pathways that can become our default settings of respect and love. The Buddha said that there is an end to karma. And he said this about the end of karma. He said, there is, there, the end of karma is karma that is neither dark nor bright, with neither bright nor dark results. And this is the karma that leads to the end of karma. And that karma is wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, you know where he's headed, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration the Noble Eightfold Path, leading to the cessation of karma. This is from Wendell Berry. It's called The Real Work. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we've come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. And I love that phrase, the impeded stream is the one that sings. That is, you know, the water that has to tumble over obstacles, rocks and logs, and it has to leap down steepness, like us. This is the stream that sings. It's not the one that flows just really quiet and smoothly through the flatlands. And maybe your life is flat and smooth, but most of us face rocks and fallen branches and steepness. And so it's also really good to have this um, companion in sila, 
a teacher, a spiritual friend, each other, and help us see our attachments, uh, our <laughs> ways that we um, are impeded and that we impede ourselves. And many people, many of you in retreat, you go through a time of life review, which includes reviewing all the places of getting stuck. And obviously it's not so good to be too hard or strict with ourselves in that process. But it's also not necessarily a kindness to always be just like so sweet. Oh, honey, you know, of course you're angry. It's okay. It's normal to say and think hurtful, hateful things. And I mean, it's good to normalize these things in the mind so that we don't have to feel bad about them. But Sila, as our true spiritual friend, is really asking us to um, develop a, a safer form of refuge, independent of circumstances that might seem to justify other forms of response, which are not of love. And that means no matter what. Um, rigorously honest, as one person, one person said, being rigorously honest. And sometimes I think um, that a lot of the fairy tales are about this, you know, how to find the truth of who we are and the conditions that we each really need to thrive and to grow spiritually. Um, I was thinking of the story of the Little Mermaid. But it's not just women who forsake their own power out of love, which that love usually turns out to be attachment and deep fear of loss. And, and we can understand this. Uh, who wants to lose the life that sustains us and often many others? as well. But we pay a heavy price for this um, kind of sacrifice. Out of fear, it's the fear that Susan named so bravely in the hall this morning, out of fear of emotional pain, whether it's fear or anger or guilt or sadness, we stuff it, don't we? And we forget that it's just a feeling. And that even if we feel like we're going to die, it's not going to kill us. Uh, all that our mindful awareness asks is that we be honest about having it and learn how to tell the truth about it. In my family growing up, uh, my mom had suffered a lot of losses and my dad felt very protective of her. And... Um, so there was this mythology that mom was fragile and we had to protect her from our pain, like, like a little kitten, you know, be gentle, don't be too rough on her. And we lived in a loving family, but we were way more lonely than we needed to be. There was just way more loneliness. And we wouldn't have had to be so lonely, so all alone with our difficult emotions if we could have shared them together but nobody even knew how to begin. So then it, you know, that fear grows, that the strong feelings, the fe it's, they're bad, they can destroy you, they can overwhelm you. And so too often we curve ourselves around the person that we feel we have to be with. It may be ourselves and our own wrath that we fear to stay connected, to move in sync. We contort ourselves into all different fantastic shapes until one day we wake up and we look in the mirror and what do we see? A pretzel, you know? Like, you know, those really hard, thick, those big, salty, that kind. We've metamorphosed into a pretzel. Or, even worse, like, um, Remember the tape dispenser and how we laughed, like we've all fallen in love with tape dispensers, but you know, we can turn into one too. We can look in the mirror and suddenly we're the tape dispenser. Like, oh, I used to be this cute, juicy snail, but somehow I became 
a tape dispenser I've spent so many years gluing someone else together, or myself. And you know, it could be that heavy kind. It won't move, you know, when it sits on the desk and you can just pull the tape off and it just sits there solid as a rock on the desk. It's just like so convenient. You know, we get in the habit of just pulling off that sticky tape and we know the dispenser will not move. So whether, um, just however our karma, this is, However we give away our truth, however we curve ourselves, I mean, it can be very beautiful to swim in the medium of our beloved to say, okay, okay, I'll lose my tail. I'll, um, no, I'm going to, I'll lose my legs. I'll grow a tail. I'll swim into your underwater world. I'll learn to love the creatures there. I'll eat algae and plankton and live spirulina. I'll live a thin and weightless life. I'll sleep in caves of coral on pillows of anemone, even though they sting and I can't breathe. Oh. Maybe he says that. Maybe she says, okay, I'll shed my strong iridescent tail to come on land and grow legs and learn to dance with you, even though it hurts every step I take. And in that story of The Little Mermaid, remember too, she only gets, um, she wants a soul really, and she only gets one if the prince loves her and marries her. Otherwise, um, at dawn, on the, because that's the only way this, his soul, part of his soul will flow into her. Otherwise, at dawn, he's going to marry somebody else and she will... Uh, disintegrate and turn into sea foam. So we do these contortions and sacrifices to avoid loss, loss of our own love. And I think that's why we love these fairy tales, at least I do, because they're telling our story and they're pointing the way to true sila, which doesn't ask us to become some other kind of creature, but to please, 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 just trust the one you are. In my uh, first Zen retreat with my teacher, Kobenchino Roshi, he, we had a meeting and he asked me a question. I hadn't met him before, but he really put his finger on something. He said, uh, when the last teacher has died, who will be your teacher? I had been practicing, I think, maybe three years or so at that time, and my teacher was everything to me. Um, when the last teacher has died, who will be your teacher? And I had practiced, so I had a really great answer, which I offered to him. I said, everything, everything will be my teacher. That's a good answer, don't you think? I thought it was a good answer. He said, no, no. You, you yourself, you will be a teacher. So I think as long as we take the teacher to be outside of ourselves, eventually we're going to suffer when they leave or die or fail us or disappoint us as they inevitably will. And that's why the Buddha didn't leave an appointed successor. The real teacher, he said, is Sila. And Sila is always present in the pure and compassionate heart that simply is cause and effect. In the wise detachment and clarity of calm abiding that allows the mind to rest in stillness. From the Sutta Nipata, the wise hold on to nothing as theirs and reject nothing as not theirs. So here's the Zen view of Sila. We think of Sila as doing good, but that's actually, um, that's actually 
there's another way of seeing it, that um, doing good is doing good, and that sila is quite different. It's compassion. And compassion functions very freely with no separation between the doer and the thing that the doer is doing. It just happens. It's like, you know, we don't have to offer offerings and gifts and prayers to the god of hair. Our hair just grows. It just happens. And it's that sense of, uh, you know, if somebody falls, you just help them. If somebody's hand is shaky, you serve them. I mean, it's just a very spontaneous, intimate um, activity. And from Coben again, I asked him once, I was working with at a school that we had started for very severely emotionally disturbed children from all over the Boston area, little kids, little fire setters and all kinds of really interesting kids. And, but it was hard work uh, with them and with their parents. And I asked Coben in a meeting, like really sincere question, what is the best way to help these kids? What what is the best way to help these families? And he said, no idea of helping. No idea of helping. So, just this um, non-separation. Me over here, trying to figure out how to help them over there. No idea of that, just uh, understanding our, our connection. Um, you know, you come in filled with bliss to our meetings, and I fly around with you with delight. You find a bird who's dying, and you feel her little heartbeat, and I weep with you. Or a lizard, you know, darts the wrong way so fast and winds up under your foot. And I feel the shock of being the agent of another being's death, unintentionally. That was the lizard's karma. But ours too, if we step on it, not separate. So sila is our willingness to become that kind of compassion, just join with each other that way. One of the things that I love to do is to lead retreats for uh, caregivers who work with dying children and their families, uh, the nurses and doctors, the medical professionals, but especially the nurses, I have to say, because the nurses are the ones who are mostly there at those crucial moments. My mom died. this year, and I always tell some story about her, but I just can't this year. But we did arrange for her to die at home, which was a great blessing for her to be surrounded by her flowers. I mean, one of her last words was to look at all her amaryllis that were in bloom and to say, beautiful display. There, that's a story about her. <laughs> beautiful display, like just mm, appreciating life. It was really best for her, but boy, sometimes at the end I wished we were in the hospital because I wanted a nurse there for me. Um, My friend Catherine is a nurse and we lead the retreats together. She works in the intensive care unit um, at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. And she told me a really beautiful Sela story about a little five-year-old girl who was really badly bitten by a dog. I mean, she was actually killed, but uh, the mother saw it happen. The dog bit her in the neck, and her mother held her immediately and felt the life leaving her daughter's body. And just with all her strength, she called her back, and the girl came back. And she went in the ambulance, they went to the hospital, the intensive care. 
And I think when her mother saw all hooked up to surgery, she saw the suffering, and she was not going to get better. And so the mom, with the support of Catherine, was able to let her go, to tell her and let her go. And it was so beautiful because it was such an act of generosity, but Sila too, because the family decided to give, to donate um, her organs. And so the family's there grieving and going through what a family goes through when they lose a child. And then they took her body to, to the OR to harvest her organs. And, um, and all these people just lined the hallway. They were in so much respect for this mother and this family that could do this. And Catherine said they all, all the extended family members and all the staff applauded this child's life as she was taken down the hall. So I think Sila is this kind of selflessness too, this kind of selflessness. I'd like to end with a story about my teacher Maureen, a wonderful Zen teacher, my heart teacher that I practiced with from the time I met her in 1979 until she died in 1990. And this is the same kind of story because when Maureen was dying and we had seen her that night and gone home and then her family was with her a lot of the night, but her children uh, they were adult children, but they were grieving, and they were just draped all over the bed, sobbing. And, and it was a nurse who came in and who said to them, you really need to let her go. And they listened to the nurse, and, and they did it. They told her it was okay to go. They stayed with her a lot of the night, and then I woke up suddenly at four in the morning, and I got up to sit, and at 4.15, I just felt, it was the weirdest thing, I felt all the energy just leave my body, and I thought, oh, and I called the nurse's station, now this is not good Sila, but I lied, I said I was her daughter, but I felt like her daughter, (laughs) so, you know, anyway, they wouldn't have spoken to me otherwise, Um, and I, it was 4.15, and I said, I'm Maureen's daughter. And they said, Maureen has just expired. So I woke up Ami Diller, who was staying at my house with her little daughter, Shauna Maureen, and we tucked sleeping baby Shauna, she was sound asleep, into bed um, next to George, my then husband, uh, who was also sound asleep, and we left. <laughs> and we went to the hospital. It was snowing, and we went to the hospital to sit with our teacher in the falling snow. It's big, huge snowflakes of tenderness, just falling softly from the infinite sky, just falling all around us, melting on the linoleum floor. And we sang to her. We sang this song uh, called Atadipa. Uh, it was a chant that we did in the zendo, and we sang, I'll just sing to you a little bit, this song. It goes like this. Atadipa viharata atasarana Ananasarana Dhamadipa Dhamasarana Ananasarana That was her favorite chant. And it means look within. 
You are the light. Take refuge in yourself. Do not take refuge in others. Look within. You are the light. The light is the Dharma. Take refuge in the Dharma. Don't take refuge in anything other than the Dharma. So let's sit for a minute. Deepa Viharata Atasarana Ananasarana Dhammadi Thank you. I'll put this on the board and maybe we can chant it together tonight. <laughs> 